0: Thank you so much for having me. When I, when I woke up this morning, I got dressed. I was worried that I'd be underdressed. And I saw Pastor Matt this morning, and I thought, I'm good. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me. Again, it's such a joy to see you all. Uh, it, was, it was just a privilege for me to come and preach several times here and get to know so many of you. It's good to see you again. Uh, and, and Pastor Matt is a dear friend. Brother, I'm so grateful for our friendship. Um, there There are different seasons of of life that God will lead you through, the past couple months for me have been particularly difficult. Uh, And and your pastor, Matt, has been such a dear friend. So, So thank you for your friendship and your care for me, brother. If you have a Bible, go and grab it and open it to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is going to be looking at the second half of chapter 10. Last time I was here, Pastor Matt had me preach on chapter 10 verses 1 through 18, and so I gave him three options of different passages that I could preach this morning, he chose the latter half. Um, It is a heated section, so uh, if it's difficult or if there's any problems that come, um, Pastor Matt's right here in the front, on the right side, you can talk to him. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter 10 verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Uh, I'll read the passage and then we'll pray and get started. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which shouldn't be too different from yours. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Four. If we deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God? has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners, accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about your word this morning, we know that it is easy for us to fall back into sin. That's easy for us to grow weary and feel like giving up. Even this morning, as we hear from your word, we could be tempted to be distracted, distraught. Caught up in the worries of this life. So we ask, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that you would help us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our ears and eyes to be able to see your glory in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is hard. Oftentimes it can feel like we're running a consistent uphill battle, hiking up Mount Everest as we seek to do our best, as we seek to honor the Lord, sometimes it feels like our grip can slip. Our efforts aren't enough. And we begin to wonder whether or not we can even make it to the end. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians that are dealing with the same struggles that you and I face. Difficulties in life. Trials of circumstance. Doubts in the heart. And they're wondering if the Christian life really is worth it. And the author of Hebrews' answer to that question is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. That's what we focused on. Last time I came here and preached, the first half of chapter 10, lifts up Jesus Christ. And now in this second half of this chapter, the author of Hebrews then goes from Jesus to transition into some exhortations for us as Christians to be able to hold on to Christ as we follow Jesus together. It's the main idea for us this morning, to to follow Jesus together. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to do. And there are three parts to to this second half of chapter 10. Number one, there are commands. Number two, there are consequences. And number three, there's confidence. So there's commands that he gives us to keep. There are consequences of our disobedience. And lastly, there's confidence the author of Hebrews wants to instill in you and I. Let's start with point number one, commands. Read with me from verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through His flesh. Last time I preached here, we looked at how Jesus enters into the holy uh, heavenly temple. That because of Christ's work for us, we have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, the most intimate dwelling place of God. And the way that we enter in, according to verses 19 and 20, is through the blood of Jesus. The author says that we're able to enter into this sanctuary, this holy place, through the curtain. Of his flesh. Right. When you look at the old Jewish temple, there's a thick veil that covers the holy of holies that you need to enter past in order to enter into this presence of God. And here, the image is that the temple of heaven contains a curtain as well. And the only way to enter in is through the body of Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, only the highest ranking priest could enter through that curtain once a year, one time. Every year. And he had to offer a sacrifice in order to cleanse himself, to make himself ceremonially pure enough to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies without being killed. Before he can even offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. But in Jesus, we obtain entrance into that temple. And not just an earthly temple with earthly fabric that can fray over time, but a heavenly temple. And this entrance isn't a curtain of fabric, but a curtain made of his flesh. In other words, the only way that you can be accepted before this holy, just, almighty God is through Jesus. There's one entrance. Jesus is the curtain. You have to enter in through the curtain of his flesh, through his blood. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, this is the good news that all Christians believe that you and I have the same problem. We're both sinners. And because of our sin, God has every right, and he would be just, to sentence us to a just punishment of eternal death and hell. But God, out of his kindness, didn't leave us in our helpless state. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And on the cross, He paid the full penalty of sin that you and I deserve. And and to symbolize the finished work in the body of Jesus, God, at the moment of Jesus' death, tears the earthly curtain of the temple in half. Completely torn in two to show us that through Jesus' death on the cross, we have full, complete access to a holy God. See, the only way that you can be forgiven of your sin isn't by you trying harder. Isn't by you having a rehabilitation plan. But through the supernatural work of Jesus. It's through His mangled, bloody, broken body that you can be forgiven in full. And He offers you that forgiveness today. You can go to Him. You can enter into this sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. You can turn from your sin and place all your trust in Him. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Turn from your sin. Go to Jesus. Find your rest and peace in Him. There's no greater news that we'd like to talk about. If you want to talk more about Jesus, feel free to talk to me or Pastor Matt or any of the members here about what it looks like to follow Christ. And all this is possible because of what Jesus does. And in light of what Jesus has done, the author of Hebrews now transitions for the rest of the book into three main commands, three lettuces, not to be confused with the vegetable, right? Three three heads of lettuces for us to obey here. Let's, Let's start with the first one, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. The first command, the thing that God wants you to do in light of everything that Jesus has done, is to draw near. See, the the first sign that you understand the work of Jesus is that you go to Him. That you go to Jesus and and when you enter in through this curtain when you go to Jesus there is no sheepish shy shimmy into God's presence no in, in verse 22 it says that you enter in boldly you enter in with confidence why not because you're awesome but because of the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus That when Christ sprinkles His blood onto our hearts, it it actually cleans us. And look at how the author describes that that cleansing in verse 22. That Christ cleanses our hearts clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed in in pure water. That that cleansing that that Jesus gives is a deep clean. A, A cleansing that's deeper than our exterior actions. It goes into our interior hearts. That that this cleansing is so comprehensive that Christ's blood is able to cleanse you from an evil conscience. From an evil conscience. Imagine that. The, The heart in you that desires sin, that enjoys it, that fully rebels against God, that hates those around us, that sins time and time again. When Jesus comes and sprinkles his blood on you, that conscience is made completely clean. Which which means that when we draw near to God, there is no blemish on us. There is no second thought he gives us a pure heart, which means that you can have full assurance of faith. And notice that the author says assurance of faith. He doesn't say assurance of works. He doesn't say assurance because you didn't curse out your coworkers this week. He doesn't say assurance because I actually read the books that are back on the bookstall or that Matt recommended to me. It's an assurance of faith, of trust, that, that we're so confident in Christ's blood that we can go to God without a single ounce of doubt weighing us down. That there's no awkward glances across the room to see if Jesus and you are actually really good. We can go to Him. His blood covers us. That's the first thing that God wants you to do as a Christian. So draw near to God. The second command is here in verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Not only do we draw near to God, but we continue to hold on to the confession of our hope, that the Christian faith is not just a one-time faith. It's not just about knowing the date and time that you walked down the altar and gave your life to the Lord. A a true Christian is a continuing Christian. A true Christian is a continuing Christian. And, And notice what we're supposed to hold fast to. The confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. In other words, the call here is to remember Jesus to remember Jesus, to continue to hope in Jesus because Jesus is faithful. That's harder than it sounds. To hold on to hope. It might feel easy to imagine yourself just kind of gripping onto a rope, but it's different when you're dangling off of a cliff. Holding on can be exhausting. Holding on can feel hopeless, when, when trials grip your heart and drag you to the pit of hell, when sin continues its siren song trying to draw you away. And regardless of those things, time just continues to erode away at our confidence in Jesus. I mean, how do we, feeble Christians, hold on to that kind of hope? By remembering the reason for our hope. By remembering the reason for our hope. Not in what we do, but in who Christ is. In who Christ is. Look again at verse 23. It says, Since He who promised is faithful. It doesn't say, since you are faithful. It says, since He is faithful. It doesn't say that Christians are perfect all the time and that you're going to perfectly believe all the time and you need that perfect track record in order to make it. Instead, he says to hold on to the confession of your hope, not because you're going to be faithful, but because Jesus will always keep his promises. There's not a single promise that Jesus has given that He will not fulfill. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that. For every one of God's promises is yes in Him, Christ Jesus. Every single promise. That's how you can hold on to the confession of, of our hope. That's how you can hold on when you lose loved ones dear to you. That's how you can hold on when it feels like the world is collapsing in on you. That's how you hold on when temptation prowls, seeking to devour you. You remember Christ's faithfulness. You remember His promises. So when temptation hits you, you can remember 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Or when the world wears you down, you can remember Psalm 32, verses 18-19 through 19 that say, look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him. Those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And when sorrows come, you can remember Revelation 21.4, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Hold on, because every single one these promises are yes in Jesus. All of them. He is faithful and He will continue to be. But God offers us even more grace in these promises. He also gives us each other. Let's look at the third command here in verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to provoke. Love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The main command is the first to watch out for one another. And that idea of watching out is more than just making sure that you're okay, but a care for one another, a considering care. That that you as a Christian are called, according to the author of Hebrews here, to have a vested interest in the brothers and sisters in Christ around you. And what does that considerate, caring, watching out look like? It looks like provoking love and good works, gathering together, and encouraging one another. Start with the most obvious one. If you want to care for other people in the church... You need to show up. You need to show up to church. It's really hard to provoke love and encourage those that you never see, that you never talk to. Now, I realize the irony of preaching this in front of all of you. Congratulations, you made it. But let me ask you, do you prioritize the gathering of the saints? Do you physically prepare yourself to be here for the gathering. One pastor has said that, that Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. Right? Do you go to bed early enough that you don't oversleep in the morning? Have you made sure that you have ample time to talk to members before, during, and after the gathering? Or, or, are you checking your watch? Knowing that every second John Lee continues to drone on in this sermon, it's going to intrude with your more pressing activities of the day. See, your entrance precedes your ability to encourage. So show up. Show up. But don't just show up. Do something while you're here. Right? The author tells us to provoke love and good works in each other. To look around at the other saints in the room and be ready to poke. To prod. To provoke love and good works. That can be hard. Especially when when, when church can often be such a discouraging place. So, so let me encourage you, if, if you feel disconnected, right, um, which is such a common experience, I've felt that, others have felt that, let me encourage you, one way to resolve that tension is to choose to be that kind of person who provokes love and encouragement in others that you want to receive that you want to receive. I remember having a conversation with a member of a church years ago, I'm trying to keep it sufficiently vague, right? uh, who complained to me that the church did not do a good job of encouraging and reaching out to her. And she was so upset that in her impatience, she got some of the members of the church that were also feeling disconnected and went to lunch together, and they went and they had such a great time. Now, I'm not saying that you should go and throw yourself a pity party, right? Where everyone just kind of provokes angst in one another. But she ironically fixed her own problem, didn't she? Right? That the best way to provoke love and good works in one another isn't primarily by asking the church to do stuff for you, but for you to take initiative. Right? For, for you to actually step into that area of discomfort that you would like someone else to do for you. Right? The Christian life is situated in such a way that the more that you give, the more you get. And the best way to provoke love and good works in one another isn't primarily by going to a women's Bible study or getting plugged into an accountability group or showing up to a small group, even though those are all good things. I hope you go to all the things that you can. But those good things aren't the main thing. The bread and butter of the Christian life is through initiating discipling relationships with one another. Those other things are good. They're there to feed you and to encourage you and to equip you so that you could do the discipling relationships better, right? So that you can have avenues to be able to engage with one another more, right? But you're not gonna get anywhere unless you actually take that step of initiation for you to invite someone else into your life to ask you challenging questions, to talk about spiritual things. One way you could do this well is by committing premeditated encouragement. Or what I call third degree encouragement. Right? Uh, I have a membership directory in my Bible. I pray through every week. And and when I pray through these members, our dear saints to me, one of the things that I think about is who I need to talk to. Who I need to Encourage in order to provoke love and good works. And my roll in on Sunday morning, I tend to have a plan. There are people that I need to check up on. There are people that I want to care for. Let me encourage you to do that. Let the Spirit do work in you before the Sunday gathering to be as encouraging as possible in the Sunday gathering. The author encourages us to keep encouraging one another. As we see the day approaching. That every Sunday is a Sunday closer to when you're with the Lord and when Jesus comes back. That we need each other to look ahead towards that great reward. To remember that Jesus is worth it. This is precisely why membership in a church is so important. Now, Pastor Matt did not ask me to do this. Like I'm not like under the gun to like speak on behalf of him. Right? Well, let me encourage you, if you're not part of a church, that's something that Jesus wants you to do. Something Jesus wants you to do. That we're not supposed to walk the Christian life alone. Here, it it addresses people that are in the habit of neglecting this gathering. And I want to challenge you that if you're in that position, you shouldn't feel great. Right? A thin thread cannot stand on its own. But as we look to Christ, our anchor, seated in the heavens, As we hold on to the confession, each fellow church member is like another thread, braided together into a rope to to strengthen one another, encourage one another as we hang on to Christ until Jesus comes. Because the consequences of not caring for one another, not holding on, not drawing near, are deadly. That that was our first point. It's the longest one. Here's the second point. Consequences consequences. Verse 26, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Sometimes you need a warning. The author takes time to transition from the positive reasons to draw near, to to hold fast, to care for one another, to the negative consequences of when we disobey. That if we go on sinning after receiving this knowledge of the truth, if we intentionally, continuously, go on sinning in an unrepentant state, even if we've received the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. That that blood that we might expect to cover us is completely gone. Instead, there's an expectation of judgment and fire that will consume the adversaries or the enemies of God. Because if you commit continuous, unrepentant sin... That's what you are. You're an enemy of God. Not a friend. And God is not dumb. He can see right through our hypocritical hearts. And He will not be mocked. He can see our wickedness and He hates it. He hates it. Verse 28. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here the author of Hebrews completes the comparison between Israel and the wilderness with believers today. That not only is there a greater priesthood in Jesus, a greater place in the temple, a greater promise in Christ, a greater propitiation or atonement or forgiveness in Christ's sacrifice, but there's a greater punishment as well. With Moses, if if anyone disobeyed the law, if anyone disobeyed the the Old Testament law in the nation of Israel, if two or three witnesses confirmed that sin, they were killed with no mercy. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that if in the Old Covenant you see such a severe punishment for a lesser law, that there's going to be greater punishment for those who follow Jesus and then fall away. And it makes sense that that punishment will be so much more severe. Because what falling away means for New Testament Christians is so much worse than what disobedience looks like in the Old Covenant. I mean, look at verse 29. Let's just walk through the descriptions here of what falling away means. The first phrase there is that you trample on the Son of God. Christ is precious. He is Almighty God. Took on flesh for us. Humbled Himself. The perfect, most precious gift. And when we sin, we take that Son of God, truly God, truly man, King of kings, Lord of lords, seated high above in the heavens, and we pull Him down and trample Him with our feet, crushing His head with our heel, crushing His body with our apathy. Second phrase, regarding the blood of the covenant as profane, that that precious blood from the fount of grace, the the blood of Christ that that sanctifies you, that, that cleanses us, makes us without blemish before a holy God, that when we intentionally, unrepentantly go on sinning, we treat that cleansing blood as profane or as filthy as sewage water. We turn the fount of grace into a toilet. Insulting the spirit of grace. We take the Holy Spirit, precious, holy God. And when we sin, we, we take the Spirit who lives in us, who regenerated us from death to life, who, who bears witness to us that we are children of God and we spit in His face. We reject the Spirit who offers us every spiritual blessing in Christ and we treat Him as though He were beneath us. Does that pain you? Because the more precious Christ is to you, the more painful sin will be. The more precious Christ is to you, the more painful sin will be. That if God is holy, majestic, infinitely good and gracious to you, then sin will look hideous. Malevolent, infinitely detestable, and disgusting. Do you see the Lord as holy? As beautiful in His infinite perfections? Do you fear Him? And sin must be disgusting. Sin must be repugnant, repelling, something to be rejected. Because what makes sin significant isn't just the badness of the thing itself, but who your actions are against. It's because God is beautiful that sin is so ugly. And it's the tarnishing of that beauty that deserves the greatest condemnation. It is right for God to turn his hand against us sinners. It's precisely what we do whenever we practice church discipline. It's not a church puffing out its chest and proclaiming self-righteousness in the midst of its own hypocrisy. Church discipline is a group of repentant sinners tearing their clothes at the sorrow of another sinner engaging in unrepentant, continued, tangible sin. And what we want to do as Christians is to thoughtfully humbly, honestly warn that brother or sister about the danger that is to come. That's what we're doing. What's the point of this warning here? What's the point of the author of Hebrews listing all these things for us? To keep our eyes ahead. To keep our eyes ahead. The the point of this passage isn't for you to get freaked out, go to bed every night, and wonder whether or not you're really a Christian. It's not the point. The, the point of the author of Hebrews here in provi- providing the negative consequences of our disobedience is to create a positive result. They actually scare you of the consequences of falling away in such a way that would provoke you to continue to be faithful to Jesus, to, to take your sins seriously, to continue holding on to Jesus, to keep your eyes ahead. Harriet Tubman led slaves from the south to the north through the Underground Railroad, and she kept a pistol at her side at all times. And part of it was to fend off against potential people that may endanger the lives of slaves. But another reason was because slaves would often get cold feet and would contemplate whether or not they should go back and return to their master. Wondering if slavery back home was better than the difficulties in the road ahead. And Harriet would use her pistol at those slaves to remind them what awaited them back home, that the shackles of slavery were no better than a bullet in the head. And as a result, she led many to the north through the Underground Railroad, and she did not lose a single passenger. Why does the author of Hebrews point the eternal flames of hell at our face? To remind us the consequences of falling back. Do not be like the Israelites, tempted to go back to the shackles of Egypt. Don't be like Lot's wife, looking back at the terror of Sodom and Gomorrah with longing and being turned into a pillar of salt. Keep your eyes focused ahead. The author then turns from the terrors of falling away to remind us of how far we've come. That leads us to our last point. Confidence. Confidence. Look at verse 32. Remember the earlier days when after you have been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle, with sufferings. Some of you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. Other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. The author wants us to remember here that the trials we've experienced since coming to know Jesus were all worth it. That if we were to look at a highlight reel of all of our lives, that we would see some hard sufferings. We would see taunts, afflictions, even imprisonment. And we simultaneously endure these struggles and accept with joy the confiscation of everything that we have. The question is how? I mean, how, how do you lose everything that you have with a smile? How do you endure a hard struggle with sufferings with joy? Not by denying the difficulty of what's happening. Not by pretending that with Jesus everything is squeaky clean. But having confidence in the reward that is to come. That when you endure difficult trials, great sufferings, trials, taunts, confiscation of your possession, and you continue to hang on to Jesus, It shows the confidence that you have in that reward. That you really believe that Jesus is worth it. It's one thing to say that you love another person. It's a whole other thing when you've weathered trials together. Right? Through the furnace of friendships, marriage, family. And you're able to say, I'm still here. What the author of Hebrews is saying is don't let go of that. Jesus is going to offer you a true reward. So don't throw away that confidence. Keep your eye on the prize. And you will receive that reward to come. Let's finish this passage here from verse 36. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. We need endurance. And the way that the author of Hebrews helps us, strengthens our bones, stills our trembling hearts, is by summarizing what Jesus will do. That Jesus will come again. And he will not delay. Jesus will return right on time. And while we wait, we live by faith. We don't pull back. We're not people who fall on our back feet, who recoil and retreat. We are those who press forward with faith and will be saved. So many of you are pressing forward, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. Some of us don't even know what this week is going to bring. Keep pressing, look to the prize ahead, look at Jesus. He's gone before us. He went to the depths of death and emerged victorious over the grave. And as we press forward in faith together, the promise is that we're going to join him. That's what we get to do every time that we take the Lord's Supper together. We remind ourselves as we look back at what Christ has done. His blood spilt for us. His body broken for us. And we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because that Jesus who died rose from the dead. And when we press after him, we're going to do the same thing. We'll join him. And all of these things, all these warnings, these exhortations, these encouragements for us are to help us to rely on our Father. Charles Spurgeon gives this illustration of of a father going on a hike and and speaking to his child, exhorting him, stay close. Hold on to my hand. We're going to make it to the peak. And then what he does is he brings the child to the edge and lets him see down to the rocks below. And he says, child, if you were to fall off this cliff, you will be utterly Dashed to pieces. And he asks the question, is that warning there so that the father may grab the child's arms and and pelt them over the cliff? No. That warning is there so that the child holds on even more eagerly to his father. says, dear father, hold on to me. Protect me. Encourage me as a child leans into the bosom of his caring parent. Let's lean into Christ together as we trust that He will bring us faithfully home. Let's pray. Lord, another week has passed. Another week where we're closer to you coming again. And Lord, some of us are weary. We are tired. We're weak. We're worn. We ask, Lord, that you would instill in us a confidence that is greater than our own strength, a trust that surpasses all understanding, a peace that can stare the worst that this world can offer with confidence that you will return, that you will set everything right. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in the meantime to be proactive in drawing near to you and holding on to the confession of our hope and caring for one another. We can only do this by the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.